that's a whole other mess because Lyme disease is surreally expensive. I mean, I'm now in like serious, like six figures, like with Lyme disease. And I spend a tremendous amount in supplements every month and I still get IVs done quite a lot and they're all super expensive. Um, and I don't do treatments that might help me because I can't afford it. So and that's a real ongoing battle and just a real mess with no answers really. That was Poro Chista Kapoor, and you're listening to Real Talk Radio with Nicole Antoinette, episode 192. Welcome to Real Talk Radio with Nicole Antoinette. That's me, the podcast that's filled with refreshingly honest conversations about the wonderful mess of being human. It was so much fun to dive deep into the topic of money last month. I hope you enjoyed it and learned something and felt like you got a lot out of it. I certainly did. And this month, we are moving into a new theme. We're going to be talking about chronic disease, invisible illness, and healing. Some of you probably already know that I have been struggling quite a bit with my own health over the past year, year and a half, and I'm so grateful for the three guests who are joining us in February to dig into these conversations. I think that you are really going to love them. So we'll get to today's guest in a minute, but first I want to thank the 400 plus people in our Patreon community because it's their contributions of $1 or more per episode that literally make this entire show possible. This podcast is and will always be free, of course, but if you love it, if these conversations make you laugh, think, and feel less alone, if you feel like you're getting value out of this show, I hope you'll go to patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette to make your pledge of $1 or more per episode. Your financial support is what will allow me to keep making three new episodes per month, and it pays everyone involved in creating the show. That includes me, as well as my sound engineer, Adam Day, and, of course, every single one of our guests. And higher rates are always paid to our guests of color, as well as our queer and trans guests and others with traditionally marginalized identities. I know it's not the norm in the podcast industry to pay guests or really to have a listener-funded show in the first place, but I believe that where we spend our money is a real-time vote for the kind of world that we want to live in. And if I want to live in a world where people get paid for the work they do, especially creative work like this, that means that it's up to me to create that model here at Real Talk Radio. Oh, and there are lots of fun bonuses that you'll get in the community as well. You get exclusive content, first access to event tickets and retreats, and lots more. There are actually unique bonuses at each of the different funding levels, so I bet that you'll find a level that feels perfect for your budget and for the type of content and community that you would most love to be a part of. You can learn more about all of that and join us at patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette. Okay, now let's dive right into today's episode. Today, you'll get to meet Porochista Kapoor. Porochista is a writer whose nonfiction work has appeared in many sections of the New York Times, the Los Angeles Times, Slate, Salon, and many others. Her debut novel, Sons and Other Flammable Objects, was a New York Times editor's choice. Her second novel, The Last Illusion, was at 2014 best book of the year, according to NPR and others. Her third book, Sick, a memoir, which we talk about quite a bit in today's conversation, was a best book of 2018, according to Time Magazine, Real Simple, The Paris Review, and more. Her next book is a collection of essays entitled Brown Album that comes out in May of this year. She has also taught creative writing and literature at Johns Hopkins, Wesleyan, Columbia, Bucknell, Bard, Sarah Lawrence College, and many other universities around the country. And among her many fellowships is a National Endowment for the Arts Award. In this episode, Porochista shares her story of chronic illness. We talk about the financial side of being chronically sick, the roadblocks to proper diagnosis, her dislike of wellness culture, 
and how it is felt for her to get a diagnosis that is considered controversial and therefore not believable by some folks. We also talk about relationships, and she shares the stark truth that there are some people who haven't stuck around during her illness relapses over the years. Going deeper into that, she then shares what she calls her unpopular opinions about boundaries and putting yourself first, and I found her take on this particular topic to be so refreshing and interesting. Porochisa's disruption of the first I was sick and now I'm healed narrative we commonly see is much needed, and I so enjoyed having this honest conversation with her. I hope you enjoy it and maybe even feel a little challenged by it too. Quick content warning though that she does talk about suicidal ideation in this conversation, so just a heads up about that. All of that starts in just a moment, and as always, you'll be able to find all the links and resources mentioned in this episode over in the show notes at realtalkradiopodcast.com. All right, we are rolling. Porachista, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Tell me how 2020 has been feeling for you so far. Ooh, wow. Um, you know, the last few years were very challenging, especially as a chronically ill person. Um, 2019 was half good and half very, very bad. And so the good part sort of rolled into 2020 with me. So, so far, you know, um, it hasn't been too bad. I mean, I guess it hasn't been too bad in terms of how I feel as a person, I mean, geopolitically or like outside of me on the whole, I mean, between Kobe Bryant dying, us nearly going to war with Iran, you know, all that stuff, it's been horrible. But I've had a lot of personal growth and transformation in the last, you know, several months. So I feel like I can kind of handle things. Mm. Um, so yeah, I, I actually feel very fairly strong, which I haven't been able to say for a few years. Yeah, that's wonderful. Isn't it interesting too? the like almost dual answers to that question of, well, in the greater world, it's one thing. And then within me personally, maybe it's something that's different and sort of having to like balance both of those truths inside yourself. Yeah. I mean, that really has been the tricky thing about the, you know, last few years of Trump is that there's a constant feeling of badness outside of you. But yet, you know, you go through the normal stuff you go through, you know, there's loves and losses and, you know, the regular ebb and flow of life. But, you know, then you have this very abnormal, strange, you know, political landscape that's very dystopian. So how does that not affect you? Mm -hmm. So it's, it's, yeah, it's been a very challenging thing to keep oneself sort of straight while all this is going on. Yeah, I couldn't relate more. Um, when you mentioned a couple of minutes ago that you feel like in the last few months, there has been some significant personal growth for you. Will you say a little bit more about what you mean? Well, yeah. So, you know, in the summer of 2019, I made a kind of crazy choice to move back to New York, which really has been, you know, the love of my life. I've mostly lived in New York as an adult. But generally, when I've been very chronically ill, New York has sort of seemed like a bad place to live. And I think most chronically ill people would agree. And um, I was in Los Angeles, and I had gone to Los Angeles after being in Northern California for a while and being in Northern New Mexico for a while. And I was just really disintegrating. And I just thought, look, I'm dying anyway. Why don't I just go back to New York where at least I have a cultural life, I have my old friends, and I just have a sense of familiarity with the city because even though I grew up in Los Angeles, 
I never got to know that city the way I got to know New York. Um, I came to New York when I was 18. And so this is where I really felt like I truly came of adult age. And so, you know, the summer I was essentially pretty bedridden and somewhere around, um, July or June, it was, it was late June, actually. I just thought I had to get out of here. And I had some people that were able to help me in New York try to find a new place to live. I mean, for several months, I was actually quite um, without a home. And I just sort of assembled some people to help help me, some I knew well, some I didn't know well. And I set about the task of committing to an apartment here, which is always daunting. And I just thought, I'm going to try to proceed as if I'm well. And I'm going to challenge myself to grow into this sort of calculated wellness that I'm going to construct for myself. And uh, I've never thought that way in my life. You know, I'm the sort of person that if my body is malfunctioning, then it's the end of the world and I can't see outside of that. But for me, the personal growth was the summer when that was all happening and I was in a really scary place physically. I mean, truly at a rock bottom, I just thought, I'm going to still try to do this. Um, what's the worst that can happen? I can fail. But I couldn't possibly feel worse than I already did then. Mm-hmm. So I let rock bottom sort of propel me into finding myself again. And so, you know, with the start of 2020, I turned 42. And, um, you know, it's kind of been like the past half a year. I've actually felt better than I've felt in my life. I actually... It's like my body sort of accepted the challenge and I am finally feeling well and possibly better than I have in a long time. So it's pretty exciting. I, I sort of say that all hesitantly because, you know, you get scared of jinxing things. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, it's, it was kind of a miraculous what happened between the summer and now the winter. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's wonderful that you're feeling better. I get what you mean about, hey, I don't, you know, I don't want to jinx this or I don't want it. You know, what if it's not this way forever? But regardless, I mean, that's like great that you're feeling yeah. good right now. Yeah, I, I really feel like I, I find it almost like kind of cheesy. I wake up in the mornings and I think, wow, like, you know, I'm not in insane amounts of pain. And wow, like the day doesn't feel like a burden. It actually feels like it has potential. And these are feelings that I was really distanced from in the last few years. So it's been really great. Um, I, I crawled out of a really, really treatment resistant depression, um, on top of everything. And so, um, knowing that I was able to do that, cause this was really the challenge of my life. Um, the last few years have just been unbelievably horrible. So knowing that I could actually, I had it in me to come out of all that has just been really um, empowering. Yeah, I bet. It's interesting too, what you were saying about, you know, wanting to move back to New York, even though maybe it didn't make logical sense. I can relate to that so much of, okay, maybe like the pro and con list doesn't necessarily like check out completely, or I thought this wasn't the place for me, but that moment where either it's worth the trade-offs or you're just like, you know, my gut feeling or my intuition or however you categorize it is saying this thing. And so sort of just like, all right, screw it. I'm going to go for it. Like that has been like so many different periods of my life. I feel like I've done that and like done the move almost against whatever (laughs) seemed to make sense. And sometimes it worked out and sometimes it didn't, but I never regret having done it. Yeah, it's, it's really kind of crazy. You know what's funny about the whole gut feeling thing is 
my gut feeling actually told me not to go to New York. (laughs) I actually went against my gut feeling. And that's actually been important to think about because I think when you're sick, sometimes your intuition is warped. And so your body will tell you to choose fear over hope. And so everything in my brain and body was telling me, no, stay in Los Angeles with your parents. You're living rent free. Their house actually doesn't have a high mold count. And mold was really my undoing in last year's. They can help feed you. You still have friends in Los Angeles. You can find your way. Um, It doesn't make sense to head to New York as fall and winter come along and you don't have a job. You don't have money. What are you thinking? So like all these thoughts are so rational to me and they still make sense, but it was just kind of like a weird leap of faith that had to do with something almost like, I don't know, something sort of surreal, (laughs) almost mystical in me that just told me like, you know, it was almost like I was wrong about so many things. I was also wrong about this. I actually didn't think I had much longer to live. And I thought, well, what the hell? I'd rather just go see art and, you know, go take those walks in the park that I used to. And I just thought, if I'm going to die, I'd rather die in New York. So, yeah. That's real. Oh, my God. It was really dark, actually. Um, Well, because New York's always been, for me, um, this sort of answer to L.A. It was, like, where I escaped from to find myself. And so it was always, like, to me the chosen home rather than the home that like you get born into or you just end up in because of other people's decisions. Um, it was really for me by adult chosen home, whether I liked it or not. And there's a lot I don't like about New York actually, but it's kind of where I belong. Yeah. I love that. As someone who has kind of bounced around also between um, LA and New York, there's like so much of what you're saying that I can relate to is funny to me too. So, um, in 2018, it's funny, we were originally going to uh, record for the podcast a couple of years ago, I think when your memoir, Sick, first came out or was about to come out. Um, and so it'll be interesting to have this conversation, you know, sort of after that time period and after, um, uh, you know, everything that you just mentioned and starting to feel better. But so that memoir about your experience with, with chronic illness, I've heard you say that the book you initially sold to your publisher was quite different from the book that you eventually wrote. Will you tell me more about that? Yeah. So when I sold the book, it's funny, the actual like announcement happened when I was in Australia. And I remember I was at book festivals in Australia really on a high. I was incredibly hungover that morning when we made the announcement. I was in the bed of some random like writer I'd had a fling with. (laughs) And I was like, totally living on booze and like whatever I wanted to eat. It was like I had forgotten that I was someone with chronic illness and disability in my past. And those years around that time, I was feeling kind of invincible, like Lyme disease was over and I was now just going to be very well. And so the book that we were selling was all about like, you know, coming into health and like you too can like beat your own like, you know, diseases. And it it was kind of like a ridiculous book, A, a book, honestly, you see a lot of these days that's like, you know, how to like beat all odds. And it was kind of like a wellness narrative actually, rather than a chronic illness narrative. And, um, so it was, you know, really like, I don't know, maybe only 
six months after we sold it that I got into this really horrific car accident. And then I had a concussion. And that was during the time where I was supposed to do much of the writing. And suddenly I couldn't read or write. And that was like the one thing I needed to be able to do for this book deal. And the book was actually in danger, just like I was in danger. And I was like, I don't know how I'm going to do this. And it took shifting the narrative of the book in a way um, that, that made me, I think, actually find my way out of this really dark place, writing a much more honest book and writing a book that was coming from, again, a sort of rock bottom. And, and that like suddenly that message was like, wait a sec, like this can happen to you over and over again. And, and maybe you're never entirely well. Because the thing with the, the car accident was like, I didn't respond to it the way a person would normally with a, a concussion. I, I had like a Lyme relapse and that was much more dangerous than the concussion for me. So that was when I realized like, wow, this whole time where I thought I'm like, well, from Lyme, like I'm actually not. And so any normal blow to my system can have this whole other like, like set of things that most people don't have to deal with. Yeah, um, it's so interesting to hear you talk about like that narrative of almost before and after, right? Like I know that that's not, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but the like, I I had this problem, right? Or I was sick in this way and then, you know, X, Y, Z, and now I'm recovered and you can be too. Like there definitely is something like culturally fetishized almost about that. I think like I, I think about it a lot for me outside of the like illness wellness space. I think about it in terms of sobriety. Like when I first quit drinking and got sober those first couple of years, it was very easy to like put my new self on a pedestal, right? Well, I used to be this person and now I'm this other person. And the danger with sort of that binary before and after thing is like, like you said, what happens if something goes wrong, right? Like you've created this almost like perfect caricature of yourself that I know it like I, I feel like that's like a real dangerous place to be when you start to identify as like I am this completely healed person and uh, there's something in that that for me personally has been sticky. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, and that's why I don't really love those sort of books. I mean, I never really loved them, which is kind of funny. I wanted to write something like that, but I, I wanted to write it from the perspective of like a brown woman and, you know, have, have my own twist on it. But I don't know if I would have ever really been able to write that book, really. I mean, I I just don't like those books. I don't like those, like, easy, cute narratives about, like, you know, you too can be well, you know. I just don't believe in that. It's never been my worldview. Mm -hmm. But it really took a horrific, you know, um, horrific spell of, like, severe illness. I mean, it's just been crazy. The last... You know, the last decade of my life has really been like just nonstop health challenges. So, I mean, I guess going back in time a little bit, you know, of course, like we're going to be talking about chronic illness from a bunch of different perspectives, but I thought that we could, it's funny, like I want to say like, let's start at the beginning or at least like where folks might assume the beginning is. And I, I feel like the assumption is usually that the beginning is with a diagnosis, but I know that the diagnostic process itself for you, as for many of us, was anything but linear. So I'd love to kind of go back in time a bit and have you tell me about like that, maybe starting with when you knew something was wrong and going from there. Yeah. Well, I mean, for me, like you said, it's very hard to say because I, you know, since I was a child, I had mysterious health problems 
And maybe you could say a lot of that comes from the PTSD of being a child of war and revolution, uh, perhaps. Um, but it's unclear. I, I also, you know, when we left Iran from all this war and revolution, we went to, you know, Southern California in the 80s. And that was when it was like really polluted. I mean, we lived in what was called the smog bowl of Los Angeles. I mean, smog bowl, that's pretty intense. I mean, I, I just thought it was normal for the sky to be sort of brownish. And so who knows? A lot of my health problems could have been linked to that. Um, you know, my parents just never really took health issues with me that seriously. They had bigger fish to fry that had to do with like surviving in America, which was never really part of their plan. Um, so it was, it, it, there's that whole thing. And then by the time I got to college on the East coast, I also felt I had mysterious health issues, but at the same time I was sort of like a club kid and always on drugs or hungover or something. So you could never really quite say if, like what was happening with my body. I was very like detached from it. So again, like who knows, it might've been around then. And then, you know, I get out of college and what happens like nine 11 happens. Right. And so there's the trauma of those years, you know? So I didn't really get, you could say, a chance to really check in with my body till around somewhere around 2006 when I was in my late 20s. And I started to have a pretty massive health collapse, which at that time I thought was just a nervous breakdown. And I ended up for months and months and months just turning to um, psychiatrists, one psychiatrist to another. And I became addicted to benzodiazepines and various sleep medication. And I'm almost certain that that time period I had Lyme disease. Um, it all seems very consistent with my type of Lyme relapses. And I, I, I think so. I mean, I know prior to that, that period, I was spending a lot of time in the Hamptons. I had a very rich boyfriend who, whose family had an estate in the Hamptons. So I was going there quite a lot. And I remember we had this sort of like awareness of Lyme disease sort of remotely when we were out there and, um, you know, spring in the Hamptons is high Lyme. And so I just, I, I think when I got back to California to right after I got a book deal, so supposedly the happiest time in my life. And then I had this huge health collapse. I think that was Lyme disease, but of course I'm a woman in my late twenties. What am I going to think? I'm just going to listen to everyone telling me, it's all in my head and that it's normal for women to have nervous breakdowns and to have like suddenly a treatment resistant insomnia. And I was just, you know, basically hysterical. I totally subscribed to that and I let myself be gaslit all the way. And I basically destroyed my life for a period of time, um, listening to doctors. And, um, it, it was very difficult to crawl out of that. Very difficult but I did. And then it wasn't until 2012 until I had a very similar breakdown, but except this time it was so similar that I thought this can't be the same thing. It's not connected to any sort of emotional impetus. This tell, I think there's something physical here. And I ended up by the end of that journey going down the line path. And that made me realize 2006 was probably Lyme as well. Oh, that's a long time between those two <laughs> incidences. Yeah. 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 It's 
weird because I don't know what made me better exactly in 2006 other than having a very supportive boyfriend and made like very healthy food for me and I made a bunch of lifestyle changes but you know it's possible the Lyme went dormant then and just needed another trigger I mean we kind of know that's how Lyme works it needs triggers whether it's mold or um, stresses of some sort but I don't know. It's all very mysterious. There's still not proper research. So these questions get hard to answer because the medical community doesn't really have the information to help guide us. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I actually don't know that much about Lyme disease, right? Like when I think about that, it's funny, like in the sort of long distance hiking community, I think like hiking on the East coast, like ticks, Lyme disease. And that's like really the extent (laughs) of what I know about it. Um, other than, you know, what I've heard basically that like you and other folks have written about their own personal experiences. Was it something that you were familiar with really before it was in your life? No, because I'd grown up in Los Angeles and it just really wasn't a thing. I mean, I would hear it at times on the East coast, but it just seemed like so, you know, obscure and like, what were the odds? And I didn't know a lot of people who had it actually. So it was not really part of my reality. Yeah. It's weird. I mean, you're actually in a kind of high Lyme area right now. I mean, all the most beautiful parts of America are actually high Lyme areas. So I was sort of attracted to that stuff late in life. Like I was like, okay, let me be a hiker and camper, um, mostly through boyfriends who'd grown up in the East Coast. But, um, you know, growing up in Los Angeles, I certainly didn't know anything about Mm -hmm. that. Well, and correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't Lyme, isn't there some like controversy around, like, isn't it a controversial diagnosis in some ways? Can you talk about that? very much. Well, it's becoming less and less so, but it's still, there's this whole idea of like chronic Lyme, like does it exist or does it not? And I think it's basically foolish to think it doesn't exist now. I mean, there's so much evidence and in Europe, they totally believe in it. So some people think there can just be acute Lyme, but that whole notion is so shaky because it requires that you catch it right in time. So for it to be acute, you have to basically catch it in the first two weeks and then you get the antibiotics and then you basically busted out of your system but I mean it's just not easy to catch most people don't have the bullseye rash I didn't and you know you just don't really get the treatment in time and so it's just makes logical sense to assume there would be a chronic situation for most people um, and then there's the terminology late stage line which I often use and um, and, and I think that's just a sort of on the spectrum of chronic you develop late stage line and like for instance with me there's just like permanent damage that I have from Lyme. I have, you know, parts of my body that will just forever be vulnerable because of um, Lyme disease, because my chronic Lyme became late stage. And um, so to some degree, I'm always chronically ill. So yeah, it's, it's, it is very controversial, I guess, mostly because the mainstream medicine just doesn't want to face it. I think they know if they faced it, it would just be like, it would just be like, cancer would be in just this massive industry that they can't stay on top of with this healthcare system you can't you can't, you can possibly handle it i'm interested in the emotional side of it for you of having like a controversial diagnosis or sort of like the experience of perhaps only being partially believed or not being believed and you know how that's felt and what are some of the things that you've had to do over the years like to like advocate for yourself in your own care Oh, it's really been painful. I mean, it still happens all the time. You know, I have to once in a while go to, say, an emergency room or go to just, like, a regular doctor. Like, 
I had like for the first time in a long time, just like a regular normal person illness this winter, which was a good sign for my Lyme doctor and that my health, my immune system was responding normally. I mean, it had been years since I had like a flu or just regular virus with a fever. And so I had that and I had to go to like a regular urgent care, um, to just get antibiotics. And the, the doctor didn't understand like the emotional stakes for me and like going on antibiotics again. Cause like, I was like, that can re-trigger my Lyme. And I've been on antibiotics for so much of my life because of Lyme disease. I just am really hesitant. And, you know, he just like didn't really understand why I was arguing with him. He was like, well, you have a bacterial infection and we've got to deal with it. And like, he was also like really surprised that I was in more alarmist about the fact that like my ear was bleeding at that time. Like there was just blood coming out of my ear. Um, but I am so, um, you know, I, I just, I have a high threshold for pain now and things like that don't phase me. There's been so much body horror in my life in the last several years. So it's just like dealing with the medical community is where I really get freaked out and all my trauma comes back. Otherwise, you know, it's okay. Like I, I kind of can deal with the other aspects, but when I have to deal with doctors, in particular doctors who don't know a lot about it, then I'm just like super freaked out and like on a defensive and things can go wrong very easily. Yeah. Yeah. I'm interested, maybe, and maybe it's related to, you know, what you just said, like having to deal with doctors or particular experiences that you've had, but can you speak to what you found to be some of like the roadblocks potentially to like proper diagnosis and care? You mean for people in general, the roadblocks? Or I mean, maybe what you've experienced, because like what you said about, you know, not wanting to deal with doctors or, you know, having these different experiences and it being triggering, like you're certainly not alone in that, right? Like I've had other people in my life say something similarly, whether it's because, you know, of a bias against them that happens, you know, when they go through a traditional, you know, medical type setup or just anything in general that you feel like, man, this has been like a real roadblock for me. Yeah, well, I just think being a woman is like a major roadblock because it's like doctors just, there's so many studies on it. I mean, doctors just don't take women seriously. So I've had to do things like bring with me like a preppy straight white man with me to a doctor's appointment so I can make sure I get heard. Um, That's been a big one. I mean, even just like little things like me having lots of tattoos, there's a bias there. Or me presenting as younger than I am. I mean, generally people think I'm like, Sometimes they think I'm half my age, actually. And, and while that would be a good thing, normally it doesn't feel great when you're trying to be like you're trying to get someone to take you seriously. Even at times where someone like figured out that I was like a writer or a public figure that kind of counted against me in some way, it wasn't really like a plus. So it's just like the roadblocks seem endless. I mean, not to mention being a brown woman of Muslim background and Iranian. I mean, I've had doctors like, their first questions were like, tell us about Iran and war, or like, tell us about like, what, like you were born into like weird questions about my background that they would never ask a white person. And so those things have all been very tough to navigate. I mean, it's a little easier now that I'm older and things phase me less and I've sort of seen it all, but it's um, nonetheless frustrating. Well, yeah, I mean, and that it winds up potentially being this negative feedback loop where if you don't have good experiences and you don't feel like you're being taken seriously and the whole thing feels like jumping through hoops, especially when you already have a limited capacity for any reason, like that absolutely becomes a thing where it's like, God, I just can't deal with this, but I have to deal with this. 
Yeah. I mean, it's honestly really dangerous. And I mean, there's times where I've had to like on the fly, like coach my friends and what to say if we go to a hospital and they don't really have experience with it. They don't really know what to do. And like suddenly they're in a position where they have to be able to speak for me because I'm simply too exhausted or too ill to handle it. And I mean, it's just a lot. It's, it's, very, very, very tricky. And, and I I really wish doctors would understand these issues and realize that it it really is a matter of life or death for us, us being taken seriously. And I mean, I always say this about ERs, like ERs should be where you like get like help, but sometimes it could be the opposite because ERs are where they profile you the most. I mean, they have to make a snap judgment really quickly when you present there. I get that. But that snap judgment can often be the wrong one. And so, you know, there's sometimes been sayings among my friends and family that like, you know, ERs are where people like go to die rather than get well. And so there's a part of me that believes that and I'll do anything I can to avoid going into an emergency room. Um, even though I've been to tons of them, but it will be very hard for someone to get me there. Yeah. I mean, I just like deal with the weirdest body stuff that most people would just like freak out if they felt like even like two minutes of the stuff I deal with daily. This might be sort of a vague question, but I'm interested in your experience of finding what works for you treatment wise, sort of among all the myths and demands of wellness culture, like with that phrase, wellness culture being in like big air quotes, right? Obviously. Um, I'm just interested in what that's been like for you. Well, it always evolves. And that's something I've had to remind myself that like, it's not always going to be the same thing. Like things that worked in the past might not work now or the opposite. For instance, in the past, diet was really critical. And it was really important that I followed a clean diet and that I ate like paleo or keto and just lots of fruits and vegetables. And you know what? What's crazy is like since this past summer, like I threw diet out the door. I was like eating Domino's pizzas. I mean, basically because I needed to gain weight, I was losing so much weight and like the food of wellness culture was not helping me do that. So I had to just like improvise and just like order like burgers and fries and pizza all the time to just put on weight. And I went against doctors and I just like went, like just did something that I was like, well, this might be crazy, but honestly comfort food was felt better to me than like a salad or a green juice. So, you know, that was something like I learned that was surprising. The other thing is just like supplements and treatments in the past were helpful are like sometimes not as helpful. And I'm doing a lot of new things. I basically didn't really treat Lyme this time around. I treated like mold toxicity and that sort of mycotoxin illness more. And that ended up bringing down my sort of toxic burden so that my body could probably handle the whatever line that it normally deals with. So that was a roundabout strange sort of way to do things that I didn't do in the past, but it's like you kind of have to evolve with your own body and your own illnesses and realize that things can always change. So that's been like both exciting and frustrating. So it's like, Oh, I just wish I could just have like, I like being a creature of habit. I like having my routines and knowing what works and, everything got kind of thrown out this year and it's just like totally new things. So it's been weird. Yeah, I can totally relate to the frustration of this thing used to work or this thing used to make me feel good. Why does it no longer feel that way? And yeah, the frustration of that, especially when it's like 
man, haven't I, haven't I been here before? Didn't I solve this already? Right. And then to realize like, well, maybe, but like you said, the, as things evolve, we kind of have to evolve with it. And I feel like just the reminder that like you're giving me and everyone of that perspective switch, even if the circumstances are exactly the same, that perspective switch of like, okay, can I accept that I'm going to have to evolve as this evolves? And you know, a thing that worked or didn't work five days, five months, five years ago might be different now. And if so, I feel like that just, it's almost like a pressure release value of not being so hard on yourself of like, what's wrong with you that this thing doesn't work anymore? Right. Cause I mean, your physiology really shifts. I think for women really like, you know, these like from like your late twenties through middle age, you really go through some dramatic physical changes. So it just makes sense that things that wouldn't always just work consistently. I just think it is frustrating. And, um, I've just had to try to like trick myself into seeing it as a great adventure <laughs> at one point where I was really thinking I was dying. And, and then I was like sort of weirdly like to deal with being like feeling like I was dying. I was also kind of suicidal at the same time. I kept telling myself to think of death as a great adventure. And it was a way of making this horrible inevitability palatable for me. I mean, it sounds really dark to me now when I think about it, but at the time it was like, honestly the only like hopeful thing I could do to deal with it because I just daily felt like I was dying. And I think, I I do think I was in a way. I mean, I was losing dramatic amounts of weight. My body was rejecting everything I put inside it and no treatments would work. Um, it was just like one disappointment after another. And I was also just like emotionally like losing my grip on, you know, keeping up with it all. So yeah, it was, it was, you know, I felt very, very close to an end point. I'm interested in what you see as maybe like the identity piece, since I've heard you say, or I, I you know, I, I think you said this in, in another interview that you don't like being one of those people who over-identify with illness and sort of the fear of being pigeonholed. Would you say that that's, that's still how you feel or did that shift at all in writing and promoting a memoir about your illness history? I'm, I'm interested in like kind of today, how you're thinking about that. Well, I'm always somewhat uncomfortable with all my identifiers, like whether it's like being a woman of color, you know, Iranian, brown woman, Muslim, you know, all the, I'm always wary of any pigeonhole just because I don't like to be like thought of in one way. But now I have so many identifiers, it's almost like its own mess. Um, And in the whole experience of sick, you know, I discovered this whole other community that I didn't really know that well. And it was full of surprises and the community itself was quite diverse and really all they had in common was illness and disability. And so it became one of my favorite communities just because it had such a diversity of people in it. So yeah, no, that I actually like didn't mind. It's, it's become one of my identifiers that I'm um, less prone to worrying about because it includes so many people. And, you know, it constantly absorbs more people like people will like most people, I feel like will experience some level of chronic illness in their life. So it to me feels like sort of my most human and um, accessible sort of identifier. Under the, I guess, like umbrella topic of chronic illness, what do you find yourself wishing that maybe people talked about more openly or that was like there was a more mainstream conversation about? Well, I do wish that there was more suspicion of wellness culture. You know, people just think it's like absorbed into 
like chronic illness culture, but it's often like at odds with it. And so like I sometimes do these Instagram stories where I talk to people who follow me. And I did one recently where I was kind of like, can you all be a little bit wary of these like self-made chronic, like, like illness, wellness gurus. There's a lot of them and they often tell you don't listen to doctors and that medicine is wrong and here's their weird remedy and oh it saved their life and like look at them now and like meanwhile it's like look at them now but like they're just trying to sell you a product like you don't even know if they're better some of them aren't I mean I I follow one woman I'm thinking of who's like in the hospital all the time with like all sorts of like stomach problems and she's like tries to do this like nutritional counsel and she's all about gut healing but like she's constantly sick with like horrific gut ailments. And it's like, if you knew what to do, like you should be better by now, but except you sell all these like really expensive online courses and people kind of look up to you and I don't get it. I mean, I, I guess I get it only from an economic perspective where it's like the illness is expensive, but I don't really trust people that like tell you like, no, only listen to me. It's, it really reminds me of those friends. You like toxic friends were like, don't talk to anyone else. Like I'm the only friend who understands you. And it's just like, it's horrific. And, and, and this also the narrative of like all doctors are bad. Like that's crazy. I've had tons of great doctors. I've admittedly had bad doctors too, but like the doctors who've helped me were the ones who saved my life. Not these random like gurus who just like taught themselves some random shit. Like I'm, I'm really against a lot of wellness culture. I'm not like a goop person. I, I don't love what Gwyneth Paltrow is doing. I mean, I, I don't think it's like serving people actually that well. Um, because a lot of, like I said, a lot of things like I've done would, would shock people like that. I actually strengthen my gut, like ordering Domino's pizzas, <laughs> like doesn't really make a lot of sense, but actually it does in a way, because I had to put on some weight in order to be like hearty enough to actually eat properly eventually. And, um, and that was important and that it makes sense that like oils and fats were like easier for me to digest than like raw fruits and vegetables, which are actually quite hard to digest. So I, I'm kind of not a big fan of a lot of wellness trends and, and the whole wellness culture stuff. I also see it as really ableist and I also see it as kind of like I don't know, a blonde white girl's like beauty pageant sort of realm. They all look the same to me somehow, these girls, you know, it's really kind of crazy. If you look at Instagram, they really all look the same. They always have long blonde hair, flawless skin. They're always really concerned about their skincare. They all kind of sound the same and dress the same. (laughs) And they, you know, love detox. They're all about detox and you know, we know a lot of the detox stuff is bullshit. We know your body can handle detoxing often on its own and you don't need tons of enemas and colonics and all this like harsh, weird, forced detoxing. So, um, yeah, I, I just sort of steer, stay away. And sometimes it means staying away from like people I actually like would have otherwise liked or were my friends, but I just don't want a part of that. Cause it's kind of like eating disorder culture actually at the end of the day. And I think it hurts a lot of people. 
Yeah, I agree with that. Um, I appreciate what you said too about like, hey, can we be a little bit more critical about this, right? And I think it's like particularly concerning to me and it's interesting because I'm in a period of time like right now in my life of getting a lot of tests done and like trying to get to the root of some of the like quite chronic symptoms that I've been having for the last few years. And, you know, I notice in periods of time where I'm feeling particularly bad that I am, and I'm sure I'm not alone in this, the most vulnerable to like, oh my God, I just want to find like the thing that works, right? Or, and that is when that type of, I don't know, wellness culture or, you know, someone saying like this one, if you pull this one lever, right, like this fixed everything for me and it can for you too. And like just the possibility in that is very attractive, particularly when you're otherwise really vulnerable. Yeah, exactly. It's just really, really scary. And it's just sad to me that it's like women who are like leading that whole way. Like it really is like a weird, like it's almost like a mean girl popularity sort of world. And I see these women like cut each other down and I don't really know. I don't want a part of that. Yeah. So pivoting a little bit, um, I am interested in sort of the financial side of this like chronic illness experience for you. Will you talk about that? Yeah, I've got a lot to say about that because, you know, I'm someone who never really had money growing up and then I never came into money getting older and I never earned money from my books or my writing And so that's been a really horrific challenge. And in 2012, a bunch of friends, like, that kind of, like, got me into that whole crowdfunding thing. And that really saved me. And then, again, in the last couple of years, I had to do a tremendous amount of crowdfunding. And it was definitely uncomfortable because I'd been helped before through that. But it was really necessary. It really saved me. Um, You know, I ended up with all these, like, crazy, like, weird reddit like trolls who like are obsessed with women who fake chronic illness for money and they like were like convinced that that was the case with me and that was really upsetting because it's already humiliating enough to like ask strangers for money but look I had to get over that because the point is like in America with our healthcare system like no one can afford to be sick and so everyone needs help and so what's the difference if you're getting that money from your rich parents or if you're getting that money from like rich strangers. Like, I, I don't know, like people are obviously giving cause they can, I've given to tons of crap funds in my life when I could, you know? So it's just like, that's a whole other mess because Lyme disease is surreally expensive. I mean, I'm now in like serious, like six figures, like with Lyme disease and I spend a tremendous amount in supplements every month and I still get IVs done quite a lot and they're all super expensive. Um, and I don't do treatments that might help me cause I can't afford it. So that's a real ongoing battle and just a real mess with no answers really. Yeah. I'm in that experience right now of almost like having to like not being financially able to like throw everything at the wall and see what works. And so it's almost yeah. this like, I mean, real like dystopian process of trying to be like, okay, well, this is, these are the resources that I have to dedicate to this. Like, which of these specialists do I think is like the best next step in this sort of like weird board game that I'm playing with my own life? Like, it's just like, I'm laughing in a very dark way, but that experience of how much care can I afford to get? And, you know, they really want me to have this test done, but this test is $600. Like, do I believe them $600 worth? Like, it's just so messed up. It's right. I know. It's horrible. It's such a serious issue, you know, Um, and and it's just no one really can afford to be sick. And that's 
a true nightmare. And that's why, like, you know, I'm getting really involved in this election and and getting obsessed with certain candidates because I think they can provide us with some answers in that area. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Something else that I have been sort of curious about your opinion on or your experience with is the relationship side of chronic illness and like relationships of all types, right? Like you mentioned before, you know, the, the pros of staying in LA and, you know, having, you know, help from your parents and them caring for you and, and all of that. And then obviously like, you know, friends, and you mentioned, you know, before like boyfriends and stuff like that. Can you talk a little bit about what the role of relationships have been like for you? And maybe that's in great ways. And maybe it's kind of the disappointment of people who don't stick around when you're not well, anything in that I'm, I'm curious about. Yeah, that's a really big part of the memoir. And it's, it's really something I think about a lot. And both the friendships and the romantic relationships. I mean, there's also the relation of my family. Um, you know, that's always been really a tough one, a tense one. Because my parents don't always really um, empathize with me when I'm ill. They really struggle with that. And they don't really understand my illnesses. And, and they're very healthy, even at their older age. And then I've had a lot of friends who've been quite disappointing. Um, and I sort of thought, around the time that sick came out and I actually got sicker that I had sort of found my chronic illness community and that I felt supported by a lot of the friends I had, most of whom were chronically ill. But the most shocking thing that came out of that was that like even some chronically ill people will abandon you and can't be around you when you're sick. And so I actually not only like have gone over the years to the experience of losing like healthy friends, I then had to deal with the loss of like chronically ill friends. And that was just like a lot to deal with. I mean, I remember being at a hospital at one point in the Bay area with a friend who had really seen me through a lot of illness and I had really seen her through a lot of illness. And she was just so checked out while I was like literally like convulsing on a stretcher, freaking out with these nurses. And it was like, she was just like scrolling through her phone, looking bored and feeling annoyed that she was there with me. And it was like, at that moment, I just suddenly knew she was not a person that I could really have in my life. And, you know, she eventually, I think, came to that sort of conclusion herself. And we just parted ways. And we were just a very strong friendship that I don't think anyone could have seen collapsing. But that happened with several people. And I don't know. I don't know what it is. A lot of writers deal with this in general, like people come in and out of their lives. And it's really quite sad. So the friendship stuff has actually been the hardest, much more than my family or like relationships, but um, relationships definitely has been a close second. And it's like, now that I'm starting to feel well again, I'm thinking, Oh, should I start dating? But then I'm just so traumatized by like, the last really happy relationship I had that was basically like came to an end when I started showing up in emergency rooms, getting really sick. And like, I remember my boyfriend at the time telling another friend of mine, like he was just totally freaked out and he didn't know he, if he could handle it. And I had told him the whole time that this was part of my life. Like I was a person who had illness and would there would be a time he would see me in a hospital and it's like, he just sort of ghosted and I never could have seen that coming with him. 
And so the idea of trusting someone again and loving someone like I did with him is just kind of daunting. You know, it's, uh, especially you think with me, with all my stuff out there, um, people would sort of know what to expect, but it's still, you know, people don't really know till they know. And yeah. Yeah. It's that sort of discrepancy between like someone being told about something, right. Or reading about something versus like actually being in it. I totally agree with you that, you know, you really can't know until you know. And I think, I think about this a lot, um, particularly in the realm of mental illness that I know this is a generalization, but that kind of culturally we seem to be relatively comfortable or at least like now. So relatively comfortable hearing about something that someone went through from like when they're on the other side of it and sort of goes back to the, like the wellness kind of triumph narrative that you were talking about with the original proposal for your book of like, you know, this is what the experience was like for me, but you know, don't worry, I'm better now or it was scary then, but like that's over now. I feel like, you know, people can for the most part hold that but there's a real difference between like hearing about something and especially like it's it's looking at whose stories get told when like obviously like you're a beautiful incredible writer and so like with that gift it it, like that almost potentially makes it more palatable for people than like the real lived like mess of having to like be there like every day right yeah absolutely it's really scary, and I thought, like, somehow, like, being really public with it all would actually help things, but sometimes I think it's made it worse, and that people are, like, kind of scared um, to get close to me, or, like, what will that mean for them, and so, like, honestly, at the age of 42, I'm kind of, like, there's days where I'm, like, oh, my God, am I going to be alone forever? Did I somehow screw up? I should have met someone when I was healthy and, like, grown into it with them, or I, I sort of, like, at times, I'm, like, oh, I wish I had the life my friend did who has a great supportive partner, and I don't know. It's, like, it's kind of, like, sad, that part of things, and at the same time, I want to be excited and think, wow, I could start my life over, and there could be something really great out there for me, but, oof, I don't know. It's really, like, it's a whole trauma of its own, so I, I haven't figured that part out, really. Yeah, I mean, and I think there's just something that's really, I mean, and maybe it doesn't feel this way to you, but, like, lovely in the honesty of that or not even lovely that's not the right word but like there's almost like a sigh of relief in that not that that's like a fun way to feel I'm sure but it's like we all have fears of those kind or regrets or what if this would have happened or I wish I had what they had or you know like all of it's just everything you just said just feels like very human to me and not to say that that necessarily makes it easier for you but there is something in that that's like okay everyone doesn't have everything figured out like I'm fine (laughs) right it's true yeah it just, it just, it's funny, as old as you get, it just, certain things never get easier, and I'm just, I can't believe, like, at my age, I'm still so freaked out by online dating, it's, like, just so scary to me, I don't know how people do it, the idea of, like, meeting someone I don't know for dinner is just, like, it, it's the same way it would have felt, like, when I was, like, 12, like, the idea of it, it just totally freaked me out, um, so... I don't know. It's that's like my current thing that I keep thinking about. Like, how am I going to navigate this? Because I would like to share a life with somebody or, or try to put that in motion somehow. Um, but at the same time, I'm like, ooh, God, what is that going to be like? 
Yeah. I want to go back for a second to something that you said earlier about the thought that, hey, if I'm really public and open about all of this, that maybe that's going to make it easier. And then sort of reflecting back on, huh, maybe that's not actually the case. And I don't really just mean in the realm of, you know, dating or relationships or that kind of thing. But that topic as a whole interests me, obviously, as someone who also shares a lot of their life, like publicly online and has done for a long time. Can you say a little bit more about that? Either, um, kind of what you thought that it would bring you and then ways in which like the reality has been, you know, different, maybe in, in good and bad ways from, you know, the initial fantasy or expectations. Yeah. Well, I don't know why it surprises me, but it does. It's like, Oh, with every book, I have a bigger audience and people know who I am. And certainly in New York, um, definitely people do know who I am. And, and that's something I engineered in my life. I mean, I wanted to, to live in a place where people knew me and I wanted to be successful enough with my life that like I had an audience. This is literally what I dreamed of. So I'm not sure why I feel unprepared for it or why it weirds me out sometimes, but, um, you know, yeah, I just, by nature, I'm an oversharer and I was an, you know, early blogger back in the day, you know, in the nineties and late nineties and early two thousands and, I had a live journal and all that. And so I've just been used to telling strangers things about myself, but, um, you know, it's like the idea of like there being strangers on Reddit that are like my, like they're like my trolls are on top of everything I do constantly. I mean, that's kind of crazy or that like there's times I am out somewhere in New York and then suddenly like halfway into meeting someone, someone will say, by the way, I didn't want to say anything, but like, I really love your writing or something. And that's kind of like, it's a, it's, I actually love that they say it, but at the same time, I'm like, whoa, it kind of is weird too. Because I'm like, oh, what do you know about me? Like what side of me do you know about? I am confused. Um, so it's, it's, it's always a little bit weird. Um, but like I said, I, I did sort of ask for this. This is something that I did definitely engineer as a child. I wanted to be a well-known writer. Um, and so, you know, I, I have it to some degree. And uh, it, it, but I mean, it probably has more upsides than downsides, actually. I mean, you know, like people do give you certain things and, um, you know, I get certain opportunities. I mean, someone told me recently, they were kind of amazed when I said, I haven't really pitched an article in a long time. They were like, what do you mean? And I was like, I just, people just asked me to write. And they were like, huh? Like, you don't have to pitch articles. I'm like, no, people just write to me to write. And I realized, wait a sec, that is weird. Like, only a decade ago, I was constantly pitching articles, like praying that someone would take something that I'd written. So... Yeah, I mean, it's there's pros and cons, but I just have to remind myself that this is definitely something I created for myself. So it didn't have to be like this. Yeah, and, and but like even within that, you know, you can engineer something and then get there and be like, oh, this isn't what I thought that I wanted. Right, right. I mean, but the problem is the internet, right? And it's like, okay, what are you going to do? How are you going to step out of things once you've been really public? <laughs> you know, it's like the internet is always there and it never forgets. And, um, it's hard to go from being an overshare to like very anonymous. Oh my God. Don't remind me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it happens once in a while, but people are then like, Oh no, something bad happened. This person, like how they disappear. 
but um, I don't really have those fantasies, to be honest. I don't really want to disappear, but um, I just, I am a little bit of a control freak Capricorn, and I kind of like do want to control the narrative around me. And so sometimes when that feels like, like I, I did an interview this morning with the New York Times, and I was a little bit like, oh, wait a sec, like, did I, like, what are they, what's their angle? You know, because I myself am a journalist who interviews people. So it was a little bit like, what is their position? And I couldn't really figure it out as they were asking me questions. And that felt a little daunting. <laughs> but at the same time, I'm like, I've done that all the time with people. And it's a game I play. Like, it's a power you have as a journalist. So it's kind of funny seeing it from both ends. You know, every time I do publicity with a book, I'm like, okay, I, I'm now in the other seat, you know. Yeah, that flipping back and forth of like, okay, I guess I have to give up some of this control. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, going back to the relationships thing for a second, when you mentioned, you know, people who had been there or people um, like from whom you felt some disappointment, do you have any, I don't even know if advice is the right word, but like advice from your own experiences for anyone that has like a chronically ill partner or loved one? Yeah. Um, well, it's like really important to know you have to listen to the chronically ill person. Right. And that's really, really important. Like what you think they need or want is not really necessarily what they need or want. So you have to really cultivate being a great listener. Um, and you also have to realize that a person that's chronically ill is not always going to be like rational and it's not always going to make sense to you, like what they want, you know? I mean, it wasn't rational for me to come to New York. It was the right decision, though. But it didn't really seem like that to anyone around me. Um, but they had to somehow support me because I really was, like, quite, like, suicidal at the time. And it, to me, seemed like the only way I could keep going. So, like, you know, I, I needed some level of support. Um, so it's just, like, hearing the person is really important. And you don't have to come up with solutions you know we say that a lot you don't have to be a problem solver you just have to like hear them and that's sometimes a lot that's in fact more than a lot because I often encountered people including loved ones who'd say you know you're repeating yourself I've heard this before I'm exhausted and you know what that's a fucking shitty thing to say like don't say that to someone who's sick they're already like in a loop they know they're being exhausting they're not surprised, but that's like a totally shitty thing to say. And to remind them like constantly of your boundaries, which a lot of my friends and loved ones kept doing, that just made me feel worse. Like, I get it. You have boundaries. I'm not an idiot. But like me now worrying about your boundaries just makes me more depressed. Like, I, I don't know how to take care of you. Like you're in a position now where you're like, like doing better than me. Like you, I, you can't ask me to also take care of your your emotions too and to like like perfectly navigate your boundaries like you're in charge of that you know and but it's also not something you weaponize and you you throw it back at me like it's not an even playing ground with chronic illness you know um you have to remember that and it's like i i get it it's shitty it's hard to take care of people who are sick but it's you know it really is a matter of life or death and like you giving just a little bit of yourself, just a small amount of yourself can really, really change someone's life like hugely. So it's, it's, it's really hard. I, I know that. And it requires a lot of selflessness. And so I don't envy people in that position, but 
I, you know, I also think it's a really important role and one you have to take seriously. Mm-hmm. That phrase that you use about it not being an even playing field, can you talk about that a little bit more? I've never heard it described quite that way. Yeah, well, it's like I sometimes feel like when I was sick, like my friends or family at times would be like, you know, like I also am tired or oh, I also feel sick today or I also can't handle this. And when they would say that to me, it was like kind of infuriating because I was like, but you have your right mind and you have your body and you have a job and you have friends and you have a life. I don't have any of those things. And you're trying to like logically communicate with me on this like weird level about like, oh, like, I mean, I don't even understand. Like, I I don't even get it when people talk like that. Like, it just is crazy to tell someone that who's someone who's suffering to try to like compare your suffering to theirs. I can't imagine doing that with someone who's sick. I don't know what you're achieving by trying to meet them at this false point that you think you have in common. It doesn't work. And that's not empathy. That's like some other thing. And it's kind of grotesque and really leads to bad things. And I think also as a chronically ill person, you should also know when to abandon certain people. And I really regret not letting go of certain friends when I had certain signs that they were going to be bad people in my life. I should have just cut and run. And I didn't. I was really attached to them because like at some point they had done something great for me and I was attached to that narrative. And I also did not want the narrative of being someone who people abandoned because that would mean like I was a bad person somehow or I was unappealing in some way. So I didn't want that. And I wanted to just think that like people loved me forever and I just, you know, gained people and never lost people. But that's not the case. I think most people who have chronic illness lose people. And you know what? Those people fucked up, not us. <laughs> and that's okay to feel really negatively, by the way, towards people who fuck up in your life. Like this idea of the chronic illness saint is also really stupid. Like that, like, well, I wish the people who treated me bad well in the end, like they have their own journeys and blah, blah. It's again, like, like part of toxic wellness, you know, <laughs> and it's like, Oh, just wish everybody well. Like, no, like, why should you wish someone well who fucked you over? Like, just, you don't have to be like actively angry, but just let them go. Like, I honestly don't remember certain friends I had a few years ago. My brain did that for me. My brain was like, those people are now dead to you. It doesn't mean you want them dead. It doesn't mean that like you have anger, active anger towards them, but it just means that they're not part of your life anymore and that you don't want them back. And that if they tried to come back, you don't, you will not let them and you shouldn't let them. You should not let in people who fucked you over in the past. Those people showed their true sides. If you can't be a good friend to someone who's sick and, and like ailing, then you, then that's, that's on you. Like you, you failed in that area and that's what you have to live with. Fine. But I take pride in being a good friend to people who need me and Honestly, it hasn't been a big issue for me, boundaries. And I think that's a very Western American idea. Um, I've been able to navigate it fine without like feeling like I'm derailing my life. I actually find that people with chronic illness usually ask less of me than healthy people. So I don't see them as a burden. And I, and I think seeing them as a burden and like overly prescribing to this like whole notion of boundaries and putting yourself first, right? 
is just like very American. And that's why Americans are very lonely. I mean, a lot of my friends who ended up abandoning me or being bad friends. And then there's some of the loneliest people on earth. Like they've done this to many other women in their lives. They've lost so many friends. And I noticed at a certain points that they would see that as a point of pride. Like, Oh, well, you know, I had to take care of myself first. It's like, wow, all you're taking care of yourself has, has turned into you being a very lonely person with nobody in your life. And I don't want a lonely life. I want like, a a house full of laughter and friends coming in and out and like parties and dinners. And that that's like, I like having a full life and that's, that's the reality I'm usually in. But those people are often in a lot of somber stillness and what they call solitude that I think is actually loneliness. So it's, it's a different sort of worldview. Honestly, it's like one of the most refreshing things I've ever heard. <laughs> like I can't like I uh, this this boundaries thing. Okay, so can you say a little bit more about what you mean when you think of this concept of boundaries being like more American or more Western? Yeah. I mean, it's like a very like like for instance, when I lived in like Harlem for the last six years, and, and to some degree now when I live in Queens, that's like I'm living around a lot of people of color, a lot of immigrants. Like we do things like we knock on each other's door and like borrow things like that's to us like really normal. Whereas I think to a lot of white people, that's like, whoa, really intrusive. A stranger knocked on my door or like, you know, in Harlem, when I'd be in line at the grocery store, like people would kind of stand close to you. And I wouldn't even notice that until a white person would kind of freak out about that. Or like people would just share their shit like loudly and like people would cry or laugh around each other. And that to me, like I, I kind of felt like white people thought of that as like third world behavior, you know, and I, I really resent that because I think that comes from a, a level of trust in your community and people around you and you're just able to be yourself. Whereas I feel like a lot of white Americans, like they live in this like weird, like you know, fences everywhere and that's their neighbors and this is them, their life and, and they don't want those like lines crossed, you know? And I just like think it's a, a horror show. Like I just would never be able to live that way. That's one of the reasons I like New York city. Like everyone's in each other's business. And if something goes wrong, people will help you. Strangers will step in and the subway is chaotic and the streets are like overly packed and everything is like too much. But you always feel like there's people around and people are always in each other's business in a way that I like, actually. Like, I just don't really trust a sort of like patrician, waspy, like quiet, overly sanitized, like boundary filled existence. I don't like that. I don't want that life. Um, you, those people are often extremely miserable. There's a ton of literature, right, about, like, mid-century white Americans being very lonely when they move to suburbs, right? You have, like, Richard Yates wrote that. Like, James Salter wrote that. Tons of people have written about that. Carver writes about that. They all become alcoholics in the suburbs because they're so lonely in their fenced white existences. And uh, I just don't relate to that at all. That's why I like cities. I like dirty, chaotic cities. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm I'm interested sort of the last thing about this topic that I wanted to ask you just I mean this could have been a whole episode like in itself I feel like the sort of like boundaries and like community and talking about this because you know obviously I appreciate your perspective when you were saying before about um not wanting to be someone who's like you know well I had to put myself first like to the point where that you know winds up leading to that kind of loneliness solitude how do you think about 
that, and I don't even know if like it does bump up against it. Like maybe it's a contradiction that we can hold of like also advocating for yourself and like your own care and like not to the point where it's like, well, I give everything away and then I have nothing left for me. And like that somewhere in there, maybe there's a middle ground, but I'm interested like for you personally, based on what you've shared, like, how do you think about that? Well, I just feel like when I'm taking care of other people, I'm also taking care of myself. And that's just how I operate. And that's sort of how my like ancestors and my, the relatives I like operate, you know, when, when I'm like, when I'm a person that has a lot of love for those around me, I have love for myself. So I just don't see it as, um, one or the other. And usually when I'm very closed off from people, I tend to also be very disconnected from myself in a very weird way. I almost feel like I feel alienated from the world and I feel alienated from my own body and mind. And, um, I just, I just want to feel like, you know, we talk about like extraness and all that. I like the world of extraness. Yeah. I just like love it. I'm a maximalist in every way. And I just, I, I love a world filled with like laughter and tears and chaos and all the emotions and stuff. I, I think that's fine. You know, it's like sometimes I'm haunted by that thing. You, They play in airplanes of like you have to put on your mask first before the kid's mask or something for air. And I, I realized like if I was in that situation, like I would probably screw up and put the kid's mask on first and then my own. But like I think that airplane like video is kind of fucked up. Like you're not necessarily going to die if you put the kid's mask on first. Like like that's a fucking split second. Like you both could survive. Actually, it doesn't leave room for that third option. It's not always us versus them. Like we can all survive together. And that's what I don't like about that. Like weird corollary that says like, it's like one or the other. Whereas like, it could be all of us, you know, that's like the idea of movements and community. It's like, we all like survive together. I feel like I'm going to get off this call and like need to call my therapist. This, I like you, like in a very good way. I feel like this, you're just bringing up some things that are like really making me think. And like a lot of what you're saying, I'm like, oh yeah, maybe I'm lonely. Like it's just like very interesting. I'm grateful for your honesty, really, a lot right now. Yeah. I mean, I know I realize some of the stuff I'm saying is not popular. And actually, I actually stopped going to therapy because a lot of therapists like don't believe this. But then I had this other weird thought last like month where I was like, it's not that I should abandon the idea of therapy. I just need to find the right therapist. And like, maybe like I need to like study like this stuff and like go into therapy. I actually had this thought recently where I was like, God, you know, this whole writing thing, like as much as I love it, it's not like totally practical. And like, I'm sick of like struggling with money and like, maybe I need to go back to school and maybe like mental health counseling could be like one way because I really like helping people and I really like helping them like, you know, feel good. And that's kind of the teacher I was when I was teaching a lot. And I don't know that, that to me, I would love to be the sort of therapist that, that has these views and and tells people that like, you know, you don't have to just like live in this weirdly selfish vacuum. Cause it's just like, I don't know, people don't think like this outside of America or even the Western world. They really don't. If you go to Asia or like South America or Africa, like people think you're crazy if you talk like this. And so, I mean, and and you could see a lot of those countries like place and continents, people are like a lot happier than they are in the West where we seemingly have it all. And we have all the boundaries in the world and it, it just doesn't make us happy. So, you know, we have to like think about that, I think. Well, I'm going to be your first therapy patient. Let me just tell you that right now. So if you go that route, you call me. (laughs) 
I know. It's funny. I really want to do it. I mean, that's an interesting question too, of like giving ourselves permission to like change or pivot. And, um, like I would say from the outside that you've had a lot of success as a writer and then to hear you say like, yeah, but that doesn't necessarily come with, you know, the like lucrative success potentially of like another industry and this idea that like, okay, like we, it's never, I mean, I don't know if never, but like that it's not too late to make a change or do something differently or add something else on top or like retrain in a different skill. And I'm always really interested in and grateful for, um, like people who put voice to that. Yeah. I mean, well, part of it comes from like feeling now that I'm in my forties, I actually feel younger than I did in my twenties. Like it's a really weird thing. Like in my twenties, I was such an old soul and I was so like, I was like screwed up in a lot of ways, but I was also really pragmatic in certain ways. And I just like worried so much. I was constantly anxious. And honestly, like recently I thought to myself, anxiety is not a big part of my life anymore. Like I just like, I, it used to be the main part of my life. I was constantly anxious and I honestly can't remember the last time where I was like severely anxious. I mean, maybe it was last month for a moment when we thought I was, I thought we were going to go to war with Iran, but that was a different type of anxiety. Like it was like, you know, not this sort of personal anxiety that eats at you. And I don't really have anxiety attacks and I don't live in that sort of weird hell that I used to. And so that sort of like feeling like okay with myself and, and all that that comes with like women getting a little older just like has reminded me that I have time actually and, and that there I can I can do whatever I want. Like I don't have to like go this one route. Like before I would have thought, oh, what a failure, the idea of someone in middle age going to school again. But I just think that's kind of exciting and like, you know, the possibility of of choosing different tracks and like not even abandoning the old track, but just doing something else with it. Like, I, I don't know. It just seems fine to me. Yeah. I feel very excited about that too. I'm in a similar place where I'm like, I, there's been a couple of things where I've told myself for years that I, Hey, maybe I'd be interested in that. Or if this thing doesn't work out, then I'll do that. And like, wait, actually, you know, maybe it doesn't have to be like a complete either or type of situation. Yeah, totally. I mean, it's like a great privilege that we all have that we can think this way. And so why not embrace it? So you mentioned um, teaching you've done in the past. I know you've taught creative writing literature at like some really wonderful places. I'm interested, not necessarily in like the most like common questions you've been asked by aspiring writers, but maybe for anyone listening who like fits that description, is there anything that you would like to offer or anything that you particularly love like sharing or talking about? Yeah. I mean, I, again, it's like, it's funny. It's kind of linked to some of my thoughts on wellness and illness. It's like, I, again, I think I can be a, a sort of offer a liberating perspective. Cause like for, for one thing, I don't really believe in like writing every day and most writing teachers, that's the first thing they tell you to do. And I've never written every day. And I'm probably one of the more prolific writers. I mean, if you look, go on my website and look at the other writing section, it's pretty shocking how much writing I've done since I was like published in, I just think writing a lot isn't a virtue in itself. I actually think reading a lot is really important. And reading is a, is a big part of my life, and it always feels like a treat. But it's something that I really approach like a practice. And uh, I, I think that is really an important thing. I think you should feel very passionate about reading. But like it's totally okay to feel like writing is kind of like a nightmare and editing is awful and all that. Those are totally normal feelings. And I don't think it's practical for people's lifestyle to assume they can write every day. That's just a lot. 
So I do certain things to trick myself into writing every day. I mean, I have this like newsletter on Substack and I just told myself at a certain point that I would write three times a week on it. So I'd have like three essays a week on that. And so I just do that and I'm, I'm sort of have that pressure of like coming up with three topics every week and they're always all over the place, but it's nice. That's a way that I get myself to make sure I write like for those periods, three times a week, I just sort of carve out that time and I'm sort of creative in my own way. But, um, and then I have my other writing projects, of course, but yeah, I, I just don't, I don't make it anything really oppressive. I don't like that. Yeah. Um, you, your newsletter you just mentioned on Substack, I didn't know that you had it. I subscribed for it today. I went so deep down the archives, just like, oh my God, I want to read all of it, like every single piece. So I'm very excited to be getting that in my inbox. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, it's really fun because I started thinking I'd only talk about chronic illness. Like it was good. I was calling it sick or sickest, like as a, as a follow up to sick, you know, given that I got much sicker after it came out. But it's now covered all sorts of things from like, you know, politics to pop culture. Like today I did a thing on like stylish authors. I wrote about 40 writers I thought had great great personal style. Like that was kind of nuts and fun. Um, And so like, yeah, it's like it's just like like becoming whatever I want it to be. And I like that I have a readership. You know, I think I have like 800 subscribers and that's kind of neat. Um, And they're all over the place, like just different audiences. So it's been a real, a real joy. You also have a book coming out later this year, right? Yeah. in May. gosh, it feels like the last one just came out, but may I have my first essay collection. So my second nonfiction book, my fourth book total, um, it's called Brown album and vintage is putting it out. It's a collection of some of my like big essays on Iranian American issues. So it's not all my essays. Like it doesn't include a lot of the chronic illness essays, but it really looks at a lot of my Iranian American essays. And it's really like the first big, like mainstream publishing, like collection of essays from an Iranian American writer. And, uh, so it's kind of exciting in that way. But yeah, it's kind of like also, oh God, another book coming out. Cause now I'm getting to a point where I'm getting kind of like exhausted by book tours. And I mean, I only was able to do 50% of my book tour with, with sick because I got sick. <laughs> so I had like an interview on a stretcher at one point in the hospital, like with New York public radio. And that was so crazy. Um, so I, I had to Skype in for a lot of my readings. Um, now I'm a lot healthier, but it's just, it is always daunting, you know, it's not the best feeling. What in particular do you feel like you love the most about this collection of essays? Like what, I don't know, for like people to start reading it or for you to know that it's in people's hands, like what are you excited about or maybe not even excited? Like what's your hope with this book? Well, these essays are actually kind of what put me on the map. It was really through the New York Times that I became a well-known writer and it wasn't really through the New York Times review of my first novel. It was more like when the New York Times asked me to write essays around the time of my first novel, and that's what got me an audience. So these are, the, these are really the essays that like are what like made me have an audience. So I feel like sort of indebted to them and grateful to them in a way. And so it's probably the work that most people are familiar with me um, with most. So even though I'm like sort of exhausted by nonfiction in a way, I I just think like these essays are special in a, in a certain way. And, um, I was freaked out. Honestly, I was sick when we were first putting it together. So my editor had to really step in. I mean, I, I got my book deal, a two book deal through Knopf, like 
right before I got ill again. It was right before Sick was coming out. And I just was like really ambitious with these two books. And, and then I just got too sick to put it together. So my editor had to do a lot of heavy lifting. And so like when I was like, re- like looking at it to revise it all and to sort of do these final passes, I was like, wow, this book is actually pretty good. And it just felt kind of foreign to me to like read all my essays together in book form. And, um, so I don't know. I think it's a special book. I'm really glad it's paperback again, like sick. So people can afford it. It's a more reasonable price point. It's got a beautiful cover and I don't know. I, I feel good about it. And I do think, you know, Iran is like obviously in the news, like as much as ever, maybe more than ever. And so there's definitely interest in that area. Um, so I'm, I'm, you know, looking forward, but also daunted, <laughs> you know, it's always a little like, here we go again, another book. Yeah. Um, it's available for pre-order, right? Yes, it is okay, available perfect. for pre-order. I so can put that link in the show notes. Yes. You can go on Amazon, you can go on IndieBound, you can go wherever you want to get books and uh, pre-orders are really helpful. I think that is a good place to start to wrap up. Unless, is there anything that we haven't talked about yet that you wanted to make sure that you mentioned? No, it's great. I mean, I got to talk about a lot of things I don't usually get to talk about. It's great. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, the way that we end these are with some rapid fire-ish questions um, that get picked by my Patreon community. So all three guests in February are answering the same questions if you're down to answer eight totally random questions. Yeah, I love it. Tell me something that you're doing really well at lately. Where in your life do you feel like you're kicking ass? Actually, sleep, (laughs) which is crazy because I've been an insomniac my whole life. And, like, I just am, like, really into my sleep hygiene. And, again, it breaks a lot of rules. Like, I'm actually looking at the Internet before I go to sleep, which you're not supposed to. But for whatever reason, like, you know, the magnesium plus the melatonin plus, like, you know – you know, some internet. I don't know. I just like, I am doing well with rest, which has not been my normal state. And I love that it's like following your own rules too. Like that, that's what it takes oftentimes. Yeah. Um, what's your favorite thing to eat for breakfast? Ooh, that's a great question. Um, yeah. Wow. Okay. Well, there's been some changes in this area. These are not very rapid. Do you need them to be rapid or no, not at all. Go ahead. It's fine. Um, so I was like, okay, at first when I was going through all this gut health stuff, I was really ill through the summer. I was like just eating like, like lots of like cream of rice. It was all I could digest. And then I would sort of like start to spice that up a little bit, like add a little bit of ghee and then like add some like frozen berries to that. And like, I was like starting to like up it a little bit. And then I was just like starting to get sick of it. Then I was like, I'll add collagen whey powder and like make it a little bit more hearty. And eventually I was like, okay, I'm done with cream of rice. So I'm just going to like do these like smoothies with whey powder and collagen and like mango and like all this like stuff that's delicious. And then I was like, oh, I don't know about that. And then now I've just started subscribing to Daily Harvest. Have you seen their ads? Do you know about them? No. Daily Harvest is like this food delivery thing. And I've never been big into the food delivery stuff, but Daily Harvest has these really gorgeous, appealing Instagram ads. And like now that we've said it, it'll probably appear on your Instagram. <laughs> so that's how it goes. Um, it's, they're like really good. And so I just sort of have gotten into their like, their smoothies are a little expensive, but it's kind of like magical to every day have this like beautiful thingy and toss into a blender. And like, when else are you going to have dragon fruit and lychee and like all these like exotic 
awesome fruits and vegetables in your in your mix, you know, not, not to mention these like spices. So I'm sure like getting like all excited in the mornings, like, Oh, this morning I have a mango turmeric, like chia seed pudding, like smoothie. <laughs> and, and so I'm, I'm like very into their stuff. Um, so I'm, I'm very into breakfast at the moment. I love it. Um, where would you say your main focus is this month? What feels most important to you right now? Um, you know, it's funny. I have like a lot of distractions have been a big thing for me. And part of it is like, I'm not, I'm such a Capricorn. Even my distractions are kind of productive on the one hand. It's like Bernie. I'm really like getting into Bernie. And I'm like, you know, just had a big viral essay in the guardian on Bernie and I'm just getting really fired up and like getting into political activist mode as we get closer to, you know, the primaries and the DNC in the summer. So that's a big one. Um, but also like I have other distractions that have been kind of silly and crazy. Like I got really into BTS. Do you know, do you know what that is? Yeah. Yeah. So I'm like, it's nuts. It's like a big part of my life. Suddenly I didn't know, like once you became a BTS fan, you can't really do it in a half hearted way. Like you have to watch all their videos. There's so many videos and all these shows. Like they have these reality shows and these little segments and all this stuff. Like I like devote a chunk of my day. It's almost like the way I used to devote time to meditation. Now I just devote to like, like just like, like checking out what's going on with BTS and their old stuff. And like, there's so much material and, and they just bring me so much joy and their message is like self love and all this like super positive stuff. So like I've become this like weird BTS super fan as this like, like like old ass person who's like suddenly into these like young guys. (laughs) Like, I don't know. I love them. I'm so into it. I find that delightful. It's like a fabulous answer. Um, okay. So besides that, the next question is what's one thing that you think people might be surprised to learn about you? So something maybe besides your newfound obsessive fandom. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I really do think people are shocked by the BTS fandom, but let me think of a different one. Um, Hmm. Well, I think sometimes people don't really realize like how like a big food person I am. Like I'm like a really massive foodie. And that was like the biggest part, like the most horrible part of being chronically ill. And so like my life really revolves around food and food obsessions and food trends. And like, I just get into these like different periods, like, or like, like right now there's certain foods that I just am like really into like creating these like like weird pestos I'm like really experimenting with like so you know pesto you have basic ingredients right you have like the pine nuts or you can like kind of mess with nuts and then you have like basil but you can also mess with different greens and like you know usually you have like like a very like parmesan cheese but now I'm trying it with like halloumi or like with mascarpone you know like weird cheeses and then um and like garlic and olive oil right and so I'm like messing with cooking and I think people don't realize I'm like into cooking. That's actually a big thing. I've been putting up like I'm baking again. I haven't baked in a while and I just put on like online this like um, this recipe for like olive oil cake. I love that that newsletter that one of your newsletters. Yeah. Yeah. Cause it's like for me, like once Kobe died, I was so gutted and I was like, what do I do when I'm really gutted? I like to bake. And, um, and it doesn't always make me feel better. It's like a weird sort of thing where I just wallow in it. Um, but it's like, it's a thing I do. And, and I really enjoy like now that I'm in this nice apartment that I got this summer and, and, um, 
you know, I bought all this baking equipment. And so, and it's weird. I just get fixated because I think I'm just going to keep making olive oil cake for a while till I finally feel like I've made a really good one. So the last one was good, but it's like, I just get really into the perfectionism of baking. So yeah, that's one. Mm, I love that. What's something that you feel like you've always wanted to do, but you haven't done yet? Um, it would definitely be something athletic, I think. Um, like in my head, I'm actually an athletic person, but there's no evidence of that at all. <laughs> like I'm actually not really in reality an athletic person, but I'm like sort of into like the aesthetic of being a person that's into athletics. Like I just like, you know, the word tomboy is maybe problematic, but I was like that a little bit as a kid. And so like, I'd really like to like go to a basketball game. I've never gone to a basketball game. I now live really close to where the, the U S open happens. So I'd like to go to like a tennis game this next summer because I watch tennis, but I've never gone to a live game really. I'd like to take up a sport, you know, I mean, I've always done yoga and then like, I guess I'm going to start doing some Pilates, but like maybe like get more into like sports that kind of seems like a fun thing to me. I don't know. Yeah. I, I just, why not? <laughs> what are a few things that you currently love to do just for fun? Mm, wow. I named a few. Um, I do fun. Well, I really love this building I live in as like proper dog park. So my dog and I spend a lot of time outdoors in the dog parks. That's a big one. Um, I, I haven't been hiking lately, but I did start doing a lot of that in the last few years. And I'd like to start that up. If, only I, if I could do it without worrying about Lyme, that would be great. What else? I mean, it's like, it's almost like I haven't been doing them yet. Like I just started the baking and the cooking in a big way. And I'm just like starting to put certain wheels in motion because I'm just like sort of coming to like life again. Yeah. After being ill for so long. I guess like, you know, I, I kind of want the dating thing to be like almost like a hobby. Like I want to approach it in that way so it feels fun and not too burdensome or heavy. Yeah. I'm just beginning to do everything. It's yeah. weird. No, I, I get it. Totally. Um, so you mentioned, um, before the importance of reading and that that's something you love, which two or three books, any kind of book, any genre at all, would you say have either had the biggest impact on you or that you find yourself recommending or rereading most often? Hmm. Well, that's always such a hard question to ask writers. I know. So loaded, right? Um, well, I could tell you about some stuff I've read recently that I really liked. I don't know if it's, I mean, I don't really go back to a lot of things. That's the thing. Yeah. I, I mean, recent liked, things that you've loved is great too. Yeah. Yeah. You know, cause I'm, I'm often a book critic. So I always try to look ahead. Um, I really like the stories and the short novels of Fleur Jaggi. I think that's how you say her name. She's an amazing kind of obscure European writer. It's like, she's quite, she's quite good. And, um, you know, she's like a New Directions author, so not totally mainstream, but pretty interesting. I've really been enjoying reading a lot of books for a big prize, I'm judging. So I read a lot of like 2019 books. Where Reason Ends by Yi Yun Lee was a real standout for me. A really, really like intense, harsh, beautiful um, book uh, that she calls fiction, but is based a lot on her life. There's, there is a wellness book I read that I quite like. That's by one of the only real healers I know. It's called Harmonic Healing by Dr. Linda Lancaster. And she was a healer I had when I lived in Santa Fe. And I've lived in Santa Fe quite a lot. But 
the last time I lived there, I went to her for this like kind of wacky parasite cleanse she does. I'm not even sure if the parasite cleanse helped me that much, but this, her whole philosophy of like sort of like vibrational healing and all that, there, there was like a logic to it that really like ended up matching the science of things for me. And so I, I, I bought her book, Harmonic Healing, very recently since I, I knew her. And I really like the book. There's something in it that felt sort of soothing. And there's like recipes in the book that are really nice and quite easy to do. Like she, she was like the cook for Yogi Bhajan and just like her whole philosophy of cooking is just very simple and, and logical and just kind of beautiful. So I really like that. Yeah, those are great suggestions. It's like a good range of suggestions too, topic wise. Um, yeah. Last question, if you could leave our community of the listeners with one call to action, what would it be? Maybe a question to ask themselves or a small action to take? Well, I would just really like encourage them to participate in this election. <laughs> it really matters. Um, I really feel like if Donald Trump gets reelected, I will have to like leave the country. I cannot go through four more years of this. So like, Whoever your candidate is for the primaries, like go full force and like really participate if you can. It really, really matters. Um, it really merges like all my areas of concern from race to chronic illness, everything. Um, so like pick your candidate, go for it. And then when we have the candidate, you know, I'm just assuming everyone's against Trump, which I know is not the case. But like, you know, when you if you're on my side of things, you know, who knows? Um you know, then just continue to hold on to that fire till the through the elections, you know, and then even after the elections, like, like, I'm hoping with all the momentum with democratic socialism with us Bernie people, like we can just kind of hold on to that and, and still have this community within this movement afterwards, no matter what happens, because, you know, you can't, you can't let go of that energy, that energy has been put into motion and and that can still add up to great things. Mm -hmm. So I would just encourage people to just get like motivated with politics, even though I know it's been very disappointing for a lot of people in the last few years. Yeah. What's the best place for people to find you and say hi online? Do you have a favorite way to connect particularly with new folks? Um, well, you know, social media is great. I'm very active as people know often. Um, I love, um, Twitter. I love, I don't love Facebook that much, but Twitter and Instagram are big places for me. Um, a lot of people have found me through Substack. So, you know, my newsletter is when they can subscribe to for free right now. It might not be free later, but it is free right now. So they can connect there. Um, but yeah, I mean, social media is really great. And then like, you know, I'll be touring again soon. I really like it when people come up and talk to me and I like meeting new people and all that. So say hi. Yeah, I love that. I will put social media links and all that stuff in the show notes. Portista, thank you so much. Thank you so much. This is great. Really fun. And that's our show for today. Thanks so much for listening and for being part of the Real Talk Radio family. Speaking of the Real Talk Radio family, I want to give a huge shout out to Adam Day, my producer and sound engineer. Adam created the music for this show, and he just makes everything work and flow and sound way better than I ever could. You can find him and his music and his sound editing work at adamday.net. And as I said oh, way back at the top of the episode, this is a 100% listener-supported show. This show is made possible by awesome people like Rachel. Hi, Rachel. Hi, Nicole. So we're going to do a round of honest rapid-fire questions if you're ready. 
I am ready. What feels particularly important to you so far this year? What do you feel like you're focusing your resources on? Oh, I, for real, am focusing actually a good amount of time and money and energy into something I've been calling emotional stretching, which is really just kind of being more emotional and like really sinking into my body more and out of my head. So like I went to retreat, I'm doing like acupuncture and therapy and sign up for like a creative class. So like a lot of time and money and energy into that. Yeah. I, I mean, I love thinking of the different ways that people invest in themselves and what it looks like when you make a choice to maybe do something differently than you've been doing it. And I feel like what you just shared is such a perfect example of that, that it might not be the first thing that someone thinks to write down on like a goal list or a to-do list, but I would imagine that the experience of it and the outcome of it are completely worth it. Yeah. I actually had a friend yesterday that told me that I was softer which I was like, I've been working on. I've been working on like actually sharing and like being more vulnerable in those things. So I was like, oh, it's nice to get little like little notes that I'm like, that I'm going the direction I want to go that people are noticing. And I was like, oh. Yeah, especially for something that isn't necessarily as easy to like check off right. of a to-do list, right? And so being able to get that feedback and I'm sure even like how you feel in your own body is, you know, maybe it doesn't like change dramatically, but just those little moments of like, oh, the effort I'm putting into this are working. I feel like that's like a very empowering feeling. Yeah, for sure. What's something that's been feeling challenging for you lately or something that's been frustrating? I think uh, that's a good one that I, I get in my own way. And so figuring out how to get out of my own way is one thing that came up. Another kind of actually two other things came up is like my dog's like, he's like being a teenager right now and I need to like train him more and work with him more. So figuring out how to do that. And also, I live in Washington, D.C., so just that whole dumpster fire. (laughs) (laughs) But yes, those things. What are you doing just for fun these days? I am trying to dance more um, and just like mini dances like in my apartment or just like when I'm listening to the my, you know, Spotify on the Metro or just stuff like that. Like they're moving more is what I'm working on. Yeah. I feel like I often forget the, I mean, and I don't use this word lightly, transformative power of like a two minute dance party. Yes. Yes. Like it's it's, so just, it's wild. And you know, the other day I like really needed to change up my energy and it was before something I was doing for work and I like wanted to be more amped up and I just like put on a great song and it was, I think like maybe almost three minutes long and I felt entirely different at the end of it. Yeah. <laughs> it's like a good no, reminder. Such a such a mindset change just blows your mind. Yeah. Can you share a recommendation for something that you have loved recently? A book, podcast, TV show, movie, anything? Oh, um, what have I loved? Well, I watched The Witcher, which I really like. I like kind of the sci-fi stuff. Um, so I liked that. Um, what else? I just was rereading a book, um, Stuart Brown's book about play, um, which I really enjoyed. So I read it a while ago and I've been like rereading it. So that's something I've been really digging. Mm, That sounds like something that I would like. Last question. What's one topic that you would love to hear more open and honest conversation about on the podcast this year? I want to hear more about what it looks like, like on a on the day-to-day of being like in relationship or in friendship with people. 
because I, I don't know, it's just something that I like, you know, I just want to see more of it and see more of like, what does like on a day to day, how do, how do people be friends like in small moments and not like big grand gestures, but just the little minor baby stuff. Mm, I love that. Yeah. So you are a member of our Patreon support squad, which means that you're one of the people that listeners can thank for making this podcast possible since you have made a small and powerful reoccurring per episode pledge that helps to fund the costs of producing the show. And I would love for you to share why you decided to support the show. Well, I really think it really goes back to just paying for the content I want to consume. Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, I think there's so many like, like why, why should art, for example, or the, our experience of those things be free? Um, like it's, someone has to make it and someone spends time and energy and, you know, love and tears to create this. And I, like, I enjoy it. I want to, like, it makes an impact on my life. And so it's kind of going with the voting, voting with my dollars and investing my money and resources in the things that I believe in and the, you know, like I want to listen to the music and I want people to be able to make music and I would listen to podcasts that I like. And so like, absolutely I will support it. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Do you have a favorite thing about being in the community? I like a lot of the things. I mean, I like the, I like the podcast. I like the community. I like, there's like little discussions, the, the link club you sent out. Like I was like, I was like, save it and like read through it all and click on the links. I have to play for like a, like 30 minutes because I like follow these links. I want to read all the articles and all that stuff. Um, I also like the behind the scenes, like looking at like you do like the budget and the business and money report. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really cool just to, to see like the nuts and bolts of what's going on. Um, I don't yeah. know. doing the I do you know for anyone who is not who's listening who's not in the Patreon community or not in this like tier that I do a behind the scenes like transparent kind of business and money report breakdown um you know sharing where money's coming from what I'm like trying in my business what's working what's not working and I didn't realize how helpful it would be for me to do that Mm -hmm. because it's like it's like forced reflection right that I'm like well every month if I'm going to be sending this to people it makes me really think through and like almost like set more tangible goals it's funny like I didn't realize in starting it that it was something that would also benefit me so much yeah no that's that makes sense it's 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 super interesting and I I've, I do that I tend to do that for myself like I'm a spreadsheet person and at the end of the month I do like a budget like a back look of like oh where did I spend my money um but it's really interesting to see like how other people spend their money because like you know just what kind of because I think how we spend our money and time shows what we value mm-hmm. yeah yeah, completely. Um, and so you already mentioned that you live in Washington, D.C. Do you want to share yeah. like a social media link or something in case people want to say hi? Yeah. Um, I'm on pretty much all the things at um, Rachcald, which is R-A-C-H-C-A-L-D. Because um, pretty much every version of Rachel Thompson is always taken. So. <laughs> awesome. Well, that's an easy one. Um, thank you. And to everyone listening, if you love the podcast, if you want to help keep it going, if you want lots of bonus content, plus other fun opportunities and extras, just go to patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette to make your pledge of $1 or more per episode. Your support is what allows the show to continue. And it'll be a lot of fun to get to talk to you and get to know you better once you've joined our community. So until next time, as I always say, here is a big virtual hug and a reminder that we're all just doing the best we can. And no matter what, we're in this together.